Today, I sat down with Mr. Andre Gorbin, who is a friend of mine and fellow coworker that I met working at Trend Capital. Andre and I have a lot in common, both being music lovers with similar tastes living in the Portland, Oregon area, which is a hotbed of great music. Andre is a man of God, a family man, and a very deep thinker and compelling speaker. And so I really enjoyed exploring some challenging topics concerning faith and spirituality with him. I really hope you enjoy our conversation as well. Apologies for the buzzing you hear for the first few minutes. It will go away for the rest of the podcast once I realize I need to turn the air conditioner off. All right, so when I first met you, I thought these were stars of David. Yeah, I get that a lot because at most angles they look like them. And when I used to work in the ER, like old Jewish ladies would talk to me in Hebrew because yeah. they thought mm-hmm. I, I mean, I look pretty like Jewish. Shalom. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, well, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, Hello. no, yeah. Hello, I, my name is Jacob. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I look Jewish, my name's Jacob, you know, it's all. So it's, what, what are these then? Uh, these are heptagrams, which are, I mean, there's a lot to go into there. I don't know if you're familiar with um, sacred geometry at all. I've, I've heard the term, the I can't say it's something I'm familiar with. Um, but yeah, it's a symbol that is important in every major world religion and like in Catholicism and Christianity, they use it quite a bit to like the sigillum de Imeth will write the seven holy names of God and the, okay. and then inside the seven names of the names of the seven archangels, archangels. And then, um, there's another set of seven. And of course there's the concept that uh that i find very fascinating um that some people use as like a a piece of evidence pointing to the truth of christianity being that we like all of our time systems in our society are based on uh universal truths like a day is the rotation of the earth a year is the earth around the sun um, a month is a division of seasons. There's four seasons and 12, you know, you just divide each season into thirds and then you have 12 months. So mm-hmm. that all makes perfect sense. But there's no reason for a week to have seven days except that God said so. Hmm. Like that's the only reason. And so we've just been counting these weeks since, you know, whether you think creation is literal or metaphorical, yeah, like yeah. the idea of the six days with the day off, six days of work with the day off is... Yeah, it's very, it's very pervasive, it seems like. Like, we don't really know when weeks began or anything. You know, like, if, if Christianity did actually if evolved, like, with human beings? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I kind of want to ask you about that, actually. Like, what are your thoughts on Genesis? Like, how much do you, do you, do you personally see as, like, um, metaphorical versus some, like, literal, perhaps, interpretations? Like yeah. human beings being formed from the dirt, or did we evolve with other primates, or what are your... Generally, with my reading of scripture, I'm pretty conservative. Um, not like, there's obviously a range there, you know, some in some instances you'd see Christians that veer into more what we would kind of label as fundamentalism, where uh, you, you have extremes of just absurdity um you have people who 
espouse, you know, flat earth, uh, supposedly out of scripture. Uh, you have people that would, you know, read something like uh, a psalm that says that God upholds the earth on posts that think that there are literal posts in outer space that are upholding, you know. And so there is no difference in the genre of the different books of scripture, right? Uh, but when I say that I'm pretty conservative in my reading of scripture, I mean that unless we can clearly see from, you know, the way that we approach the book that we're discussing, and there is a difference in how we approach each book of the Bible. Okay, I'm not going to read the Proverbs in the same way that I'm going to read the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it just doesn't make sense to do that. In some sense, I, I, I will, because I believe that I'm reading the Word of God. Uh, but in other senses, reading poetry and allegory and, uh, you know, uh, this really pronounced imagery that has so much to do with the nation of Israel and the wisdom therein over against a historical account of Jesus of Nazareth. It, it just doesn't make sense to read those exactly the same way. And so when we get to the book of Genesis, I think that the first thing that you have to ask is, what are we dealing with? Uh, this is where, you know, the whole topic of hermeneutics is really interesting, but, you know, biblical interpretation. Uh, how do we interpret scripture? Uh, and within that, you have a bunch of schools of interpretation. You have the literal grammatico-historical. So you just read the exact word. You study the grammar and you get an understanding of the history. And that will include author, audience, time of writing, etc., etc. And within that school of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, what you're kind of trying to get at is something called authorial intent. And authorial intent can be pretty slippery because being 6,000 years removed, not only from the author, but from the culture in which the author lived and the language and the language being dead. Uh, we can push for it and we could say, okay, like I am of the belief that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. I, I believe that I know that there's some argument you have a bunch of, you know, a bunch of different schools of thought about like, you know, a history, a, a person named Adam or who we would know as Adam or in Hebrew Adam the Adam the man the Adam the man right and so that's what the word Adam means uh, and so or you have you know this a group uh, of people having compiled these books and this historical accounting of this tribe this ancient tri tribe I think it was a man named Moses I think it was the historical Moses uh, that wrote the book why did he write it? I think that he was giving an accounting of the beginnings of this faith that was sort of starting up in a weird way of this people that really should have been extinguished at so many points of history that it really doesn't make sense that they persisted. And uh, whether or not you, you believe in a literal exodus, it's sort of irrelevant. One of the things that you do see is historically there has been an attempt at the snuffing out of the Israelites you know, Babylonians, Assyrians, and we have historical accountings of these, this annoying people that just keep persisting. And the Romans come around and they're like, all right, we've got not only, 
you know, geopolitical power and land and money and education and a religious system and culture and multiple languages. We have everything to take over these people. And even then, Israel persists. And this weird nobody comes out of this nation. And beyond just Israel and Judaism being a nuisance, a whole other layer gets added to it. And now Christianity is an even worse nuisance because these people are kind of okay with being nobodies. Whereas Israel tried to create an identity for themselves. The Christians are like, you know what? I'm a nobody. My savior was killed on a tree. I don't really care what you do to me. And while you're throwing me to the wolves, I'm going to sing to Jesus, you know? And so like that just becomes like a bigger issue. And so what Moses, I believe, was attempting to do was, by the inspiration of God, actually give an accounting as to how this all began and how this thing that would ultimately become this sort of monumental thing in human history, how did it come about? And so you, with Genesis, you have origins, beginning. Uh, so I read Genesis pretty straightforwardly. Um, I do believe, believe in a literal creation uh, I do believe that human beings were created by God and they were created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Uh, to what extent that is spiritual, metaphorical, psychological, whatever, you know, that I think that there's layers to that that I probably can't understand uh, because I don't believe that God has a body and has a literal physical form. Obviously, our form is not in the form of God, but mm. in the image of God, in the right. likeness of God. Right. Now, within that, we see kind of um, a breadth of characteristics that are communicated. And so in Genesis 1, you have, or not in Genesis 1, I'm sorry, in Genesis uh, 2, right, is where the creation of man and so God says this phrase, uh, let us make man in our image. And even the word Yahweh is in the plural form in Hebrew. And so we have this, this is where a lot of the beginnings of this understanding of a triune deity sort of come about. And, but within that, you, ha you have this kind of multifaceted creation of this complex human being, which we understand more and more the longer we go through human history. It's like, dude, emotionally we're complex psychologically we're complex our bodies are weird you know gut brain connection all this weird stuff going on like organs that we didn't think mattered that we're now seeing actually do play some role in survival and development right. <clears throat> uh, and so within the origins of genesis we have god is telling us hey i made you and i'm going to go about this plan of redeeming you uh, but here's how it kind of comes about with this pagan dude named Abraham that I'm going to call to myself and I'm going to tell him I love him and I'm going to give him a plan and I'm going to send him on his way to actually start this people that will never be quite the powerhouse they may want to be but I'm going to protect him and I'm going to take care of him. And in Ezekiel, God says this thing is really interesting. He's like, I chose you not because you were mighty or because you were many. I chose you because I chose you. And God is sort of communicating this, um, this covenant love and this covenant care to his people, wherein he's going to bring about the savior who will be the savior to all nations. And so that kind of, that's how I, I read Genesis through the broader redemption story, through mm -hmm. my broader understanding of scripture and an understanding that I think that this was a history book. 
right that was meant to communicate something and there are some really compelling narratives in genesis and i think something that I'd, i'd love to talk to you about um because i think it sheds light on some of my struggles with different interpretations of Genesis sure. are so like you know Darren Aronofsky mm-hmm. he he was been he was fascinated with Genesis from the young age yeah, he was yeah. obsessed with the story of Noah since he was a kid yeah, yeah. and so as a passion project he made the movie Noah and the narrative of Noah in Genesis um, at least in the in the translations that I've looked at are like two or three paragraphs right so it's literally a few sentences so obviously if you're going to make a three hour epic movie or I don't know how long it was but an epic movie about it you're going to have to fill in the blanks you know like clearly there may have been some supernatural stuff going on revolving with the creation of the ark and I think like Aronofsky's creative usage of like angels to help Noah create the ark is like it's like okay it's not it doesn't like I think a lot of Christians artistic license a lot of Christians get their like uh they get really upset about this movie because it takes liberties, but like, it's not unbiblical. Like he's yes, like he's invent he's filling in the gaps with stuff that may or may not be true. It's just yeah. his imagination around. But like the overall structure is indeed biblical, and I like there specifically. There's a scene where he's. Have you seen the movie? No, I haven't. Okay, well, there's a scene where he sits down with his children. Um, and they're like in the ark and he says like it he's retells the genesis story to his children and as he's retelling the story to them there's this like uh probably 10 million dollar cgi animation that goes along with it Mm. during this like in like in probably the most incredible three minutes of cinematic masterpiece i've like ever seen in my life and it goes through the entire genesis narrative and you know he says in the beginning there was nothing and then God spoke against the face of the void and said, let there be light. And at that moment, it shows the big bang. And then it follows as he continues through the Genesis narrative, the formation of the of our solar system and of the earth and of, of all life and fauna and plants on the earth. And then it follows life uh, or animals coming out of the ocean and evolving through reptiles and mammals and then mammals eventually becoming these really advanced primates and then humans and as soon as humans evolve it's like they're these shining golden shimmering gods and Mm. it's like god gives them the keys to like this amazing kingdom the stewards of this kingdom which i really like i to me this was very profound because uh you know if i am to believe in the bible it cannot fly in the face of what i know about about life and the universe um because like in some ways I see, uh, I just, like I, for me, I cannot deny that I have a common ancestor with primates. Like it, there, no, nothing else makes sense to me when I look at genomes and how, how cells work and how life seems to be evolving. Like that seems to, to resonate with me. And so like, I thought it was beautiful that he showed the entire Genesis narrative word for word and with the imagery of how science believes in the evolution of both the universe and of life on this planet and there was no con- conflict or anything in any of that it all wove together like beautifully and perfectly um yeah do you like can i ask do you believe that we have a common ancestor with primates or i do not no um i do believe in biblical creationism uh, 
intelligent design creationism. Um, I don't really squabble over the terms so much. Um, but I do believe that the existence of human beings uh, does stem out of God directly creating them um, from nothing to something. Uh, in that With sense, no evolutionary steps. No. Oh. no. When Not, you think about Neanderthals, did he create them as well? Uh, you know, I don't really have a good understanding of sort of what happened there. The, the main, all of the intermediate species yeah, between primates and humans see, and but homo sapiens. Even that right there, uh, there is quite a bit of hypothesis that they were intermediary species as opposed to just species. Yeah, in they could themselves. have evolved in independently yeah. created, and but they sure and so, appear to be. Yeah, I, I think that there are, there's good evidence of what happens, you know, based on environmental changes, whatever, you know, of a species in, in an attempt of, to survive, uh, evolving over time, sort of within the confines of that species. Uh, given what we know about the, the process of um, evolution and natural selection, we have to sort of see that for us to end up from an earlier primate and then before that from something entirely different, right? If we are to take from nothing to something, it would be the big bang into life, into other life, primates coming out of that, something that is non-primate. Yes. Then eventually we have to get like you, you, you basically go of species evolving into other species in order for us to have that common ancestor. Right, it's speciation, but there is there has never been a species that was a different kind, a different clade than its ancestor, right? So there will never be, but it, any of our descendants will ever not be, they won't ever not be mammals, they won't ever not be, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call them, primates, yeah. and they won't ever not be uh, descendants of Homo sapiens, so, like so, they will have all of our kinds stay the same. So there, you'll never have a reptile evolve into a mammal. That's literally not possible. All reptiles will always be reptiles. All mammals will always be mammals. I, I understand that. I think that the is, the issue that I would have is if you boil evolution back far enough to base theory, Big Bang nothing to something um it has to essentially be uh i i forget i think it's the difference being you know is it microevolution is the the evolution of a species within its own kind and then macroevolution is the transition between species yeah so th th there is only evolution but when you have speciation you can call that macroevolution and not and non-speciation yeah. mutation so basically if a mutation happens and it gives you some advantage but you're still able to produce fertile offspring with the rest of the population, that's not speciation. So you're not a new species. So how but as soon as you can no longer, and even if you can still mate with the other population, uh, you might be a new species, even if you can have children with them. But if your children are barren, then you are yeah. a new species. Um, if you cannot produce fertile offspring with the, po with the population you descended from, you are a new species. Yeah. And once speciation occurs, 
there can be no refusing, right? So by my definition, by so there's 26 different taxonomies in biology, but the only one that makes sense to me is this reproductive capability. Uh, so coyotes and wolves and many species of dogs are still all the same species. Like we can call them coyotes and wolves, no, sure. but if yeah. they can still breed and produce fertile offspring, they're not really a different species. As soon as you get, uh, you know, certain can canids and canines cannot reproduce with wolves or coyotes. They will never be able to. Again, they have once the branches go off, there's no refusing of the branches. It's not possible. So the, that is all species. A different species is is enough mutations, which yeah. for whatever reason, uh, they can no longer reproduce. So this is where you know, like, at what point then did we kind of go through that transitional period where you know this this life form is formed in the water right it becomes uh, a land creature and then there is that transitional period where there is enough mutation from the one into um, amphibians you mean yeah. yeah basically from amphibious creatures to we got canines we have Reptiles, primates and all yeah. that yeah and at that point this is where i would have some trouble because we are we have to hypothesize that that's what happened because we're finding different types of species we're finding all of these fossils that would point us to this process having occurred but there isn't anything sort of conclusive that would show that that's exactly the process we're, we're hypothesizing and we're giving the number of years as sort of a blanket explanation for how long that process would take if that's what happened. Right. So do you, do you believe that Homo sapiens are the gifted species? We are the ones that God has blessed and every other species is just below us. Gifted right? species is kind of tricky. Or what do you, how do you, so what <laughs> I, is, I would say would you image put bearers. Homo sapiens in a different category than every other species of life. Yeah, are? because other species weren't created in the image of God. Okay, so it, that's the category, right? We were created in sure, the image of sure. God. We are, image so we bearers. Are the stewards, Let's call it that. Right? Yeah. We're the stewards of the kingdom, right? In Essentially, yeah. We're the, it's all for, is it all for us? No, it's all for God. Is it no? Okay, sure, fair enough. <laughs> but like, uh, okay, I like that. Um, what about so? What about Neanderthals? Right, they are not the same species as us. They were not able to reproduce with us. They had a, just as advanced technology as us. Their language was just as advanced as us. They were as powerful. So as what's us the us. what's the uh, the time window for Neanderthals? You, I mean, you know this much much better than I do. I'd have to look it up, but they. I think that they went extinct about a hundred thousand years ago okay so um i don't have a good explanation for the different categories of uh primates mm -hmm. that kind of led up to us at least in the in the explanation of natural selection right right whether or here. not yeah whether or not but like let's say that yeah, that, that happened sure. uh let me at least feign humility here and say that I could totally be wrong, okay? Sure. So let's say that, all right? Uh, and then, uh, no, that sounds douchey. Uh, I'm not feigning humility. I'm, I just need to admit that I could be wrong, okay? Sure. Uh, but like, if if that kind of, if that came about, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with saying that along the way, there were different steps of what we know as human, right? Uh, if that's what it took for us to get to Homo sapiens today, right? Uh, then I don't 
really take issue with saying that the earlier version of that was image bearer if that's what god's plan was right i just i i personally i i believe it is possible that god created us in his like so the way that i view it is that this for me yeah absolutely cool thank you um the way that i are the microphones on yeah okay absolutely hello (laughs) (laughs) uh i thought we were just talking so 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 yeah i mean i guess my belief is that what you call god to me is like a cosmic consciousness like the universe is the entire thing an enormous cosmic consciousness like a fractal almost of consciousness and like holy divine understanding and love and evil and all of it is all baked into this you know enormous fractal that we are a part of we're like waves in this ocean that exists and uh like when when the big bang set this what we understand as matter and dark matter and all of this that we're exploring into motion um life came to be on this planet as part of the like as part of just the laws of the universe like right like it was almost like the cosmic consciousness is built around these incredible laws which seem very simple like i don't know if you're familiar with fractals but like a mandelbrot set or a julia set it is like six characters long it's a algebra it's essentially an algebraic equation a multivariable algebraic equation once you plug it in it creates the most mind-meltingly beautiful galaxies you've ever seen and you can explore each individual galaxy you'll never see the same pattern twice they're infinitely beautiful and infinitely creative and people have been exploring the julia sets for decades and they still find new incredible landscapes and vistas inside of them all the time and all of that came from one tiny little deterministic beautiful mathematical equation yeah so i kind of believe that the universe itself might be one giant fractal it's like almost what the theory of everything that certain scientists have been going for and so I believe, like, like the invisible hand of, like, this cosmic consciousness is, like, reaching to itself, like, through this incredible unfolding of this fractal, um, where time, the way, like, we interpret it, might just be another dimension, which is how, like, you could say how God is beyond time. Like, the whole, like, you can imagine the whole thing is just static to him, right? Because you can see it from beginning to end. Yeah. And if time is deterministic, and if all the laws of the universe are deterministic, how it's just this one giant flower, essentially, to him, right? That's static, totally static. And to us, we're, like, traveling through it as it expands, following the laws of physics yeah, yeah. In, in the breadth of time. And so to me, it's like, I imagine this cosmic consciousness is, he didn't, like, know that we were going to have ten fingers and, and what everything that we evolved to have, but he did, like... He did have a, this is really hard to, to describe, but I, I believe like in evolution and I believe that we sh- do share common ancestors yeah. with primates and all of that, but I don't believe that that necessarily needs to conflict with certain origin stories of me- multiple world religions, Christianity. I think included. it does though. I, and, and I don't say that in a, in a way to like to be contentious, but I think it does because within Christianity, you have far more than an or- origin story, right? The origin story is just that. It's just the origin, right? Uh, and so I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think to a certain extent we would have a lot more commonality in our understanding of the intricacies of life around us and just the universe and the beauty of all of that and the fact that it's way, way over our heads. 
and the, the best of scientists, the best of theologians, the best of philosophers don't even begin to scratch the surface, you know. Uh, but but I do think that um, like even what you've described just now, beautiful as it is, it's more of a deistic view of God, and it even theism just in and of itself, I think, inevitably will will fall short because theist, theism just more broadly is it's just general, you know, and so. As far as I can understand it, is if we can have some understanding of God that would make him, or not make him, but would identify him as personal, then I, I do think that it, it's sort of a disservice to him to say something like, you know, he didn't know what we'd look like. Right. Um, do, you, do you leave room for the possibility that you're wrong and that the God of Christianity is the one. I think, uh, like the way I see it is there's this book, the Bible that seems very special. It's the number one bestseller of all time (laughs) in this world. Very important to humans in our culture and everything. And, uh, so you have people who look for, you could say that like, in a way, we're all looking for God. We're all curious about why we're here and whether yeah, we admit to that or not, sure. whether we use that word or not, we're all curious about that. So like the way that I look at the world now is like, it's like some people, they're looking at this book that was written by humans a long time ago to try to understand the nature of the universe in which we live. And they might be reading it eight, 12 hours a day trying to figure this thing out. And then I look at other people like astrophysicists and scientists who spend 12 hours a day every waking day of their lives trying to find God by meticulously exploring his actual creation not a book written by man but the universe that God actually created so if they find something in God's universe that conflicts with something that's in a book written by human beings I'm always going to side with what the actual universe says and not with what a human being wrote in the book because I think human beings are fallible and I don't think that with what the universe says or with what we interpret the universe as saying well all we can do literally there there is no universe it's just a 3d recreation inside (laughs) your head of what's coming into your senses but what you're so this is a question more than of authority then you you see that the astrophysicist just has more authority than the person who interprets this book or the authors of this book. Right? Well, the the difficult thing here is that the Bible is not a textbook. It's not a series no, it's of not, yeah. truth claims. It is actually I, I do a believe it is narrative. a series so, of truth claims. Okay, no, there are okay, let me say this differently. So it's a historical narrative. Okay. The Bible is a historical narrative. So for me to say Abraham Lincoln was killed by John Wilkes Booth on at whatever day it happened. There's no way to reproduce that. There's no scientific claim in that. No, for sure. That's a historical truth claim. It's not a scientific truth claim. It might be true. It might not be true. People could have made that up and passed it on to us, and we would have no... We would be none the wiser. It would be lost completely to time if they did it well enough. You know what I mean? Abraham Lincoln might have never existed. It all could have been fabricated. Like, that is possible. But, But... what is sensible to believe as we watch history unraveling and seeing it get embedded into historical narratives is that you can actually, you have to 
be able to test the historical accuracy and the like the historical like the the potential truth of a historical narrative but you understand what i'm saying like the bible is not a textbook yeah a textbook is is saying like here's some scientific facts if you do this to reproduce them you should see this result happen it's reproducible like a scientific thing is reproducible not everything is science and i don't believe that science is the end all be all of of truth um i think that truth is like in like to us is kind of more of a discussion and it is like a you know we might believe something is true and then like the next moment you you give me evidence whether it's historical evidence or scientific evidence or something else completely just compelling logical argument and i can change my i i don't hold on to any truth dearly like i don't hold tightly onto them because except, I'm except eager for the to truth replace. that you don't hold on to truth yeah yeah i'm eager to replace i'm constantly trying to undermine my own belief systems right so when i when i'm really deep into the scientific like you know like understanding of of the universe i'll do something like take an enormous dose of lsd to, to remind myself that actually there there is more <laughs> just than is going on wipe here. the slate clean <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 similar, and similarly, this is getting too I, heavy. I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really think I really. Here's the thing: is that I see, I see people not doing this. Like I see scientists who spend their whole life, you know, reading Dawkins and Harris and like all of these very materialistic, very unspiritual, like com- like a lot of scientists who have no belief in anything supernatural or anything spiritual at all, and they have never done psychedelics they've never meditated they've never like genuinely they're not trying to undermine it their seems to me that Sam Harris is a bit more system. you know open to uh Sam, the broader world around us beyond the material Sam Harris is by far my favorite spiritual guru he's interesting he's interesting uh I mean but he is very much deeply rooted in the more materialistic and scientific Well, sure, because mindset. I think that that was his, like, the, the, the foundation of, like, his, his journey yeah. was that. So I don't think that he'll ever really escape that. But I think that, like, his personal evolution as a thinker, as a writer, as a teacher has prompted him more into that. And I've always found that super fascinating, too, like, the fact that this is our reality. Like, whatever culture you look at, whatever society, whatever group of thinkers the overwhelming theme is that there's something beyond the here and now absolutely and i think and this is where i think i can appreciate what you're saying a lot in, in that you know uh if we just if we if we're overly simplistic about our understanding of god and i think that i i'm probably guilty of this i think that christians and buddhists and muslims are all probably guilty of this to some extent where we try to confine God into our understanding of the, the text before us, or our, or you know the the present day definition of what it means to be a evangelical or a, a Sunni or whatever you know, mm-hmm. and not understanding that all of these things are culturally defined. All of these things are are defined by my experience in, in, in the world around me. Then I, I do think that we we can hinder a broader more beautiful understanding of god but having said that i i think that i try to be careful when i ask questions because there is this concept of 
open-mindedness that we, we, we really celebrate and appreciate. But I do think that there's a level of open-mindedness where we actually cease to think objectively about things. Mm-hmm. And so this is where that question of authority is really important to me, right? Um, I don't claim to have any authority in and of myself. You know, I, I teach, but I do my best to get myself as much out of the way as possible when I teach. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that I have much to offer in and of myself. Uh, maybe my experiences are helpful for some, but that's entirely subjective because no, I'm not living the life that somebody's living, and nor are they living my life. But I do think that if we can be honest about the presuppositions with which we approach questions and understand that there are certain authorities that are just in, inherently weightier for us, then we understand that we will be biased when we hear things, you know, we're all guilty of confirmation bias one way or the other. Uh, and I think that we we show grace to those sources of authority that are more in agreement with where I want to be headed. <clears throat> right. Religious people do this, non-religious people do this. And I think that the more that we can be honest with that and actually ask questions, uh, being okay with the fact that the answer that I hear will either be unsatisfactory or will really screw some stuff up for me (laughs) because this is going to force me to reevaluate some convictions, then I think we'll be better for it. And this is why I really just try to be as open as, as I can with, you know, evaluating my own faith. Like I don't, I don't mind putting my faith under the microscope. I know that there Mm -hmm. are going to be some things that I discover the more that I do that, that may make me a bit uncomfortable. But what I found overwhelmingly is that not just by virtue of me being able to think objectively about things that Christianity has proven true, but it's proven true for me and in my life because every time I've tested it, I'm, I'm comfortable with the conclusions that I come to, even if on an intellectual level, it's not always entirely satisfying. Well, you see, you seem like a very open-minded and compassionate Christian. Um, So like you just asked me a question, like does my, is there, is there room in my belief system to allow for the possibility that like the Christian God and the Bible and everything is just true and that Jesus Christ was the son of God. Right. And like, so for, for probably about 20 years of my life, I was obsessed with cavalry and what happened there between the relationship between Michael and Lucifer, um, between like God calls Lucifer his most perfect creation that's written in the Bible. And Lucifer only refers to Christ by one thing in the New Testament. And it's not Christ. It's not Jesus. He or Jesus Christ only refers to Lucifer or Satan as one thing. And it's not Lucifer or Satan. It is the prince of this world, mm-hmm. almost as if this world was created for him which you might see if you think that like our number one things are like Game of Thrones and like very, you know, torturous, satanic, pornographic things are pretty popular in our world. Like there's a lot of credence to that. And so I was obsessed with this concept. And then what this like accumulated in was like I was raised Christian, but I think for me, the dark night of the soul didn't come until my early 20s. I didn't really struggle with these concepts. I started reading Ellen White uh, deeply, read through the Bible cover to cover three times I, Did you grow up in the Seventh-day Adventist church? No, but I found the Adventists when I moved here. Okay. Um, I went to 
dozens of different churches. So for a period of about seven years, I would go from church to church talking to different priests. I was very addicted to drugs. I did a lot of hallucinogens. I was because I'm so obsessed with the Holocaust Hmm. and with God abandoning his covenant with the Jews and leading them wholesale into the slaughter and just and Hitler did everything exactly as it was biblically ordained two to the right one to the left like the whole thing was just so insane to me because I saw how many like innocent people and Rand like all these people did not seem to be worthy of this and I guess their population was worthy of it because somebody broke something to do with the covenant but not to jump too deeply into that what this ultimately accumulated in was I spent seven years of my life going from church to church talking through these issues with different priests and stuff and just laying my contrite and repentant heart at the foot of the cross again and again and again and bawling my eyes out and opening my soul and begging Jesus to come into my life to show me even even in a dream just the tiniest bit of evidence that he is real and that he loves me and that he has some plan for me and I never received even a shred of comfort or or acknowledgement that he is real I never everyone who says that they have a personal relationship with him I am nothing but jealous of that I think that's amazing I think that's there could be no greater comfort than walking around this world knowing that that is all true and that he is right there with you and you can feel his presence there I've desired that my entire life my life is where it is right now filled with abundance filled with love I have everything I could have my wildest dreams have all come true and, it, and, and I quit all of my addictions. I, I have no problems with drugs or sex or any of that anymore. And it's because I gave up completely on Christianity and pulled myself up on my bootstraps and took care of myself. And so I'm, it's hard for me to share this story with Christians because I don't sure, want man. Christians to, I don't want to damage anyone's faith through my narrative. Oh, for sure. I think faith is a beautiful and amazing thing. And I think like, I'm not anti-Christian, but when most Christians hear this story, they project onto me that they seem to judge me and that like, oh, you think you laid your contrite and repentant Mm. heart at the cross. You think, but you never really opened up. Like you were still, you know, they just think I was still walking in sin or something. And I like that whole narrative that like I believed until I was 25 or 26 or so that I was a broken sinner in need of a savior. And now I think part of the reason why I have an abundance and an, like an amazing, healthy like psychology in life is because I do not believe that anymore. Mm. I am a good person. I, I never do anything to harm anyone. I am not broken. I'm not in need of a savior. And none of my friends are either. All of my friends are amazing, good people. They're not sinners. They aren't. Like We're not doing things to harm other people. I think most people are. I think most people, I see them just because I'm looking, my eyes are open. I can see them littering. I can see them any chance they get to, to pull one over on somebody. If they think they'll get away with it, they'll do it. And I really could not live with myself doing that even one time. I could never cheat. Like if you look at video games, like the vast majority of people will happily install cheats. It's like, how can you even feel good about yourself dominating other people on an unfair playing field? That makes no sense. Every, everyone at the Olympics, they're all doing performance-enhancing drugs. You literally can't get to that level unless you cheat. You have to cheat to succeed in most domains in this world. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I have zero interest in, like, in, and I really, like, so I, like, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot. No, that's interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, dude, I'm sorry. I mean, I, 
I don't know what that's like to to beg and plead and then not get the solace that you're seeking. Um, I know in my life I grew up Christian, but I walked away at sort of a young age. And I sort of threw a middle finger up to the church, you know, even if that was more in a hidden way and I continued to go to church, you know, to please my parents. And then once I got addicted to drugs, I tried to come back. I tried to change and repent. And I just, I couldn't really believe. And so for me, it was more like uh, I just sort of had this thought, probably in my late teens, where I was like, well, I gave it the old college try. You know, I, I tried. I tried to repent. I tried to do the ministry thing. I tried, you know, I got baptized. I went through all of that. But the desires for, you know, stuff in the world just are too strong. So uh, that seems way more appealing. So I just, I went back, you know, and I, and I lived the way that I wanted to. And I think that when that point finally came is uh, my life just sort of started to crumble. Uh, pretty young. I was in my early 20s, but... Uh, I do see it as something supernatural. So I don't, you know, I don't minimize the fact that it is really difficult to quantify. Here's how, the, here are the steps that you take. And I think that we, just like we can be with scripture, I think with, you know, conversion, we can be overly simplistic. You know, pray this prayer, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, read these passages, you'll be set, you know. And if you didn't do it, well, that's on you, man. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, that's pretty damaging when you when you tell that to people. I don't really know exactly how that happens behind the scenes. I just know that there are certain things that Scripture tells us to do: believe, um, repent, follow after Christ. Beyond that, I I can't really explain how it works in the heart. You know. Um, but I do have a question uh, and. As, as much of this as you want to comment on, feel free, man. But when you're saying that, like, during that period where you were you, you were coming before the cross and you, you were asking for that personal relationship and you didn't receive that peace, you didn't receive that, that thing that you were seeking, uh, what were you looking for? Like, what did you expect that would be when that point comes? I mean, I've heard it put a hundred different ways it's just as per like a personal relationship with christ is just that it's very personal like you know my mom god she says god let her see heaven for a split instant like just to i don't know see and experience and just like know what it is um and some of my friends they've heard the voice of god mm -hmm. and just you know just knew it wasn't a hallucination it wasn't a figment of my imagination it was god um, but the thing that I really struggle with is that the people who I respect the most, who I feel like have the best relationship with God, like the, the, the a Pentecostal Christian uh, who baptized me um, up in the Spirit Church Woodland area, I think, um, he, he writes what God is whispering in his ear. He, he fills notebooks with this stuff, right? Um, and then he like comes back later and audits it and is like, is that really God or is that just my inner dialogue and my inner voice is that just what i want god to say or is that what god actually says and so he like you know crosses out the stuff that he thinks that probably wasn't god but yeah the rest of the stuff was god and that to me is just like i just have to like throw my hands up and be like <laughs> like like every time like so what 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 this would the way that this would manifest the most is that i surrendered my life completely to God. Anytime there was a crux, like a crossroads where I could be, okay, I could be a software engineer or I could become a doctor 
uh, like uh, things where I was really considering to because uh -huh. I worked as a medic for a while and I was interested in medicine. Yeah. Anytime I was at one of these crossroads, I would I would go to church. I would pray about it. I would ask God for guidance. Every crossroad I came to, like God, what is your path for me? Like like help like help me. And what I I kept struggling with is that it always was my decision completely alone. <laughs> I never got even the tiniest yeah. bit of like divine like guidance on anything and so every decision that i ever made like i got no help from it i never got to hear his voice never got to see how not none of the um, hundreds of amazing things that christians have described to me with like you know but things being healed yeah, or them yeah. witnessing something that was like the stars realigning in the sky to like or even like i i was so desperate i would have been satisfied with just a convincing dream like i i used to i used to pray every night for probably four or five years that if God could just give me a dream or a sign of some kind, I didn't care what it was. I don't care if like I looked in the corner and like maybe the wood grains re, re like I did not care <laughs> even the tiniest little sig signal. Um, what if it was so tiny that you missed it, man? That's like, I, so my favorite. My favorite apologist is C.S. Lewis. Yeah, and he writes some really interesting stuff about uh, like yeah, like there are there are some things that definitely I feel there is our higher powers involved in whether they're angels or God or demons or what I have no idea but I do have like some personal evidence of just like there is a, sp a deeper spiritual nature to this universe that I cannot explain and yeah. the psychedelic experience is one of those very profound things where I think the psychedelic experience just shows that there's something beyond the here and now right I mean if anything it's just it, it remove some of those inhibitions that we have in our own mind yeah at least to look a little bit beyond this moment mm -hmm. you know i've never heard the voice of god i've never seen the stars realigned uh, i don't have those kinds of experiences i never have uh, the only thing i have is i, I can fly um, but that's a pretty small <laughs> thing so no uh i i do think that there's you know I don't know what to do with those experiences when, when people tell me about them. Clearly, I'm not going to look at the person and be like, dude, you're a liar. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. Um, like, part I, of me doesn't believe that, that God does anything supernatural in this world, that faith requires, like, well, you that, to... That, see, that's a really important statement right there, Jacob. So this is where I would ask the question, like, if you have that expectation, where did you get that expectation? So what? let me... I feel like I need to clarify it because it kind of sounds like I was looking for something supernatural to happen. It's not that at all. Like... I just wanted to like feel a relationship with Christ, a friendship, like some kind, like I wanted to be able to talk to him. I wanted, every time I prayed for it, when I was a kid, I genuinely, I knew God was hearing my prayers. Okay. By the time I was like teenager and then definitely in my twenties, I have never felt that again since I was a child. Mm. Every, I still sometimes pray, especially in desperate times. We were talking about how like faith can sometimes be in a spiritual emergency room almost right yeah or the church yeah. can be an emergency room because there is nowhere else to turn there there's nowhere else you can turn with some certain quandaries that we face with regards to death and suffering and like these very you know difficult things that there are no scientific or like i don't know intellectual philosophical answers for yeah. outside of the church um but i wasn't i wasn't looking for anything supernatural to happen i just wanted I just wanted a yeah. friend in Christ. I think Christ, like when I read the Sermon on the Mount, when I read parts of the New Testament, I think Christ is amazing and I absolutely love him. And 
I cannot in any way rectify him with the vindictive, jealous, childlike God of the Old Testament, which is, again, like... Uh, nice I'm, Richard I'm, Dawkins language there. <laughs> well, <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't read Sounds the Old like Testament. Sounds like a cit- citation directly out of uh, the God delusion. Well, I mean, <laughs> we could we could get into that or not, but like it's up to you, man. But but what we, you were just asking me, like, uh, so where did you I get mean, that expectation? So basically? I want I want I just wanted help. I wanted help with my addictions. I wanted help yeah, with. Yeah. I wanted. I just wanted to be a better person. I wanted to be more like Christ. I wanted to. I wanted him to like take the wheel and like help me live for his glory like I wanted to be an instrument of Christ uh, and live my life to the fullest and now like I believe like if that if that narrative is real if Jesus Christ is the son of God then he must understand that I am I am spending thousands and thousands of hours watching debates with people like Sam Harris and and Cliff Nettle and like people like really smart guys on each side of the fence, guys and girls on each side of the mm-hmm. fence. And I am trying my hardest to understand this thing. And I cannot wrap my brain around it for the life of me. And I, it, but when I read Ellen White and I read the old Testament, I wither away, man. I fast. I like, I get skinny as hell. I don't, I feel like <laughs> I'm going to die. Like I cannot, I cannot wrap my mind around the old Testament. I cannot wrap my mind around the writings of Ellen White and like what a lot of Seventh Day Adventists believe is really dark stuff, and it's like the it's whole. It's pretty weird. It's, it's pretty, pretty weird. weird, yeah. And yeah. so I struggle a lot, man. I study every world religion, and I struggle a lot with all. I've read the Quran. I've read the Bhagavad Gita. I've read the Vedas. I am very into the Tao. Um, I practice Zen meditation every day. Buddhism has like done everything for me that Christianity never could have and I'm very very happy with my spiritual practice now but um I'm still absolutely I absolutely love Christ and and the the sermons he gave and like the allegories and the way that he spoke in parables and like it's it's very profound stuff I'm really into it but um I and and it's like and I genuinely believe like he is like that's he's either what is it liar lunatic or lord right there is no way to like say okay i'm gonna i'm just gonna pull this cool stuff out of the sermon on the mount but i'm not gonna believe he was the son of god or like that you can't he made some pretty gnarly truth claims yeah like you can't separate you you can't pick and choose what you want but that to me is what it seems like every christian is doing because again like in my experience over these seven years i was going to different denominations of churches and i was seeing people totally pulling entire churches with totally conflicting interpretations of very specific biblical passages. And like, and we could dig into some of these, um, but the one I love to focus on with, with new conversations with Christians is annihilation. Sure. Um, it, you can totally interpret the New Testament, I think, as being in support of annihilation or being in support of eternal torment. Um, yeah. There's Eternal ways of, torment, yeah. and C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this. Um, but what are your stances on annihilationism? Uh, I think that. Let me put it this way: I understand the struggle with wrapping your mind around the concept of eternal conscious torment. It also makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, I don't know how to fit that in. I don't know how to make sense of it. And I, I don't know why 
in the mind of God, that seems like the solution. Apart from some broader theological definition of holiness and justice. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've read certain things on annihilationism, which were very thought provoking in some instances convincing. I believe it was Ed Fudge who was sort of the first mainstream proponent from mainline evangelicalism for annihilationism. Um, there have been some pretty sound theologians that have come along and supported annihilationism or some version of it. Uh, I default to and lean in the direction of eternal conscious torment because this is what I seem to see most consistently through scripture and moreover what has been understood and supported by overwhelmingly throughout church history. I say overwhelmingly because there always have been little breaks with certain theologians mm -hmm. and certain groups of people that have spoken up for what we have now defined as annihilationism. Uh, I default to eternal conscious torment, although it does make me very uncomfortable. That comes from a more direct reading of scripture and from uh, um, a reading of church history, which would show me that if, if the Holy Spirit does live in all believers and if he's led the church in a certain way and he's sort of helped us deepen he jesus calls him the spirit of truth and so if that is what's happening and he's helping us understand and process and develop convictions and doctrine and all of these things are um we, we've come to believe them as a, at least a, a partially a result of his leading then i would see that for church history to overwhelmingly point in one direction and for that conversation to veer as drastically as it has really only in the latter half of the 20th century it's always sort of suspect to me and it's you know if i'm going to adopt a conviction on a doctrine a, a pretty key doctrine i would argue uh which has such a short history uh, i'm going to approach it pretty slowly i'm open to be convinced of something yeah. that is more defined along the lines of annihilationism that really vibes with me much better <laughs> yeah. on a personal, emotional, psychological level. I would love to know that my friends who've passed away who are not born-again Christians are not burning in hell right now. That makes me yeah. incredibly uncomfortable. Well, let me tell you what some of the Adventists me which is that um, when you next time like you're reading through the Gospels when it talks about the imagery of Christ being this like vine and we're all like connected to this vine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and anyone who becomes disconnected from God and Jesus from this vine is going to wither away there's nothing out here beyond God that can be thriving and good and beautiful and it's just not possible. Maybe for a little while, right? Like maybe the the third of angels that went with Lucifer thought that there was going to be thriving out here, but I think pretty decidedly, especially after Calvary, we've all acknowledged that that's not the case. And so it talks about Christ gathering all of the broken, crumbling, 
external branches that have disconnected from God, which is a, a process that C.S. Lewis said, like the door to hell is closed from the inside. Mm-hmm. It's something that like God gives you a final hand and you reject, essentially. Yeah. Uh, he gathers them all and pours them into an eternal fire. Um, and what the Adventists believe is that the fire is eternal. And it will always serve as a symbol of the people who have chosen to a different path. And like the way I see it is when I when I was very studying with Adventists a lot, the way that I like interpreted this, it's like if you're a meth addict, uh, you, maybe you were sexually abused as a kid. Maybe you were like there are people who were sure, born and course. then only raped and then died. Dude, like yeah. that is a human experience that happens for whatever reason, uh, which is a reason why people str- struggle with God. Yeah, but um. If you, for whatever reason, you can't, like, like the Bible's very clear, life is a burden. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to need to become like Christ. You're going to need to take up your cross and travel down this rocky, narrow road upwards. And your feet are going to be bloody, but we're going to get there and it's going to be amazing. Like, it's worth it. It's worth the effort. But some people, through whatever circumstances, they can't, they can't, they just can't. They can't pick up their burden. They can't follow. They just, and so they dig down into these things like heroin and methamphetamines is some form of relief from this. There's, they're out there not thriving. They're out there disconnected from God and from everything. And so the, the way I visualized it that made perfect sense to me was he, he poured them into this eternal fire where they are, where every piece of them ceases to exist. There is no piece of their consciousness that exists after this process. And that process is like an expunging of their soul from existence itself, total annihilation, and that fire will exist forever. And we will, even trillions of years down the line, occasionally come back and meditate on it and remember those people that, that didn't make it for whatever reason because we ha- we're going to have the scar of sin on us. And we're going to, you know, we'll be growing forever. The scar will never heal. It will never get any smaller. But we will get so much bigger that sin will become just such this like thing in our past, right? But without that scar, this is why the Adventists believe we had to come here and experience things like the Holocaust and like and like these incredible things yeah. because they are supposed we came here to be scarred by sin, so that the mystery of iniquity can never rise within us again the way that it rose in Lucifer. That's just yeah. No, that's I mean like I've heard similar interpretations. I think in terms of annihilation, there's elements of that that logically can make sense. The issue that I would take with the Adventist view of sin is that we don't bear the burden of sin. Isaiah 53 tells us that he himself bore our griefs, our sorrows. So those he are two, was scarred for us. Those were two different things. The burden that I was talking about is the burden of taking up your cross and following Christ. That's the Christian life. Separately from what I was talking about with regards to sin is being scarred by sin, which I think... Sure, yeah, I think that we have consequences. Because, you know, God could snap his fingers and Satan was never born in the first place. That's not what... that's, That's not the point, almost, though, because, again, Lucifer was God's most perfect creation. When he spoke, the hairs on the back of your neck stood on end. He was one of the cherubim that covered God. I believe Michael was another one. He was as close to God as any of the angels ever were. And the mystery of iniquity was found within him. So I think in this narrative, which I feel like that is what this is, like God speaks in narratives. Even Christ spoke in narratives and parables. He would invent Mm -hmm. narratives to describe 
he could have said it. And I think he, he would right, he would like explain things in clearer English to the disciples. But when he spoke yeah. to the masses, he only spoke in these yeah, yeah. cryptic kind of yeah, he told He told the, the disciples that he speaks in parables so that right. they wouldn't understand. So, and what the what I think the Adventists believe is that he needs to, like the Earth is a stage upon which Satan is allowed to unveil the full extent of his broken belief system, where we will see it to be wrong, and we will never re- repent or never uh, rebel in that way again so see uh i personally think that in that model it gives a lot more credit to the devil than he is due what did christ call the devil the prince of the power of the air yeah the the prince of this world uh prince of darkness that's pretty powerful it is powerful but what i'm saying is that i think that within that there is this element of almost like a relieving of personal responsibility. And so I, I don't know where you landed theologically on a question like um, depravity, like, you know, total depravity. So this is a doctrine within Reformed theology when the Reformers would break away from the, the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. And uh, one of the key facets among these men, among Luther and Calvin and some of the earlier Reformers of Zwingli and some of these guys was this teaching on depravity uh, which what is that so it is that human beings are born sinful and so we're born broken and dirty and gross and essentially yeah and so to not have this understanding of the fact that it is not the devil's outside evils that are just landing on me dirtying me up until jesus comes along and cleans me up but it is from within me that this rebellion comes and this rebellious heart. So the word Satan, Hasatan, means the adversary. Or the, I guess you could say the enemy, right, from, from the Hebrew. And so he is an adversary of God uh, from the beginning, essentially, you know, so of it's, creation. So are you saying that Satan might actually be something that's inside all not just like some there is that i don't take this interpretation but there is that interpretation so there is that interpretation that the the adversary is not a specific person but rather this this force of rebellion uh and this is actually i think that there was an element of this you know so like within the uh, satanism there is theistic Satanism and there is atheistic Satanism. Atheistic Satanism would essentially just say that, like, okay, you you know, you, you take the teachings of Aleister Crowley and would just say, like, there's no God but man and you just do whatever you want to do. Theistic Satanism is where you worship the devil. Uh, very few Satanists are theistic Satanists. The majority of them are atheistic Satanists. It's more of an ideology of, um, you know, freeing of whatever social confines, religious confines. Uh, I I do think that the devil, I believe that the devil is a real person, a fallen angel who is in rebellion against God, who has demons around him, who will be punished by God for what he has done, for his rebellion and for leading people astray. But the teaching of depravity would basically look at passages like the passage from Isaiah. I don't remember the exact chapter and verse, but where Isaiah says that your righteous deeds are filthy rags. 
your righteous. He's not saying your sins. He's not saying like the crazy stuff you do. What he's saying is like when you come and try to please God, when you come and you're just like, here you go, God. Here's what I got. He's saying like if you really understand holiness and if you really understand sin, you'd see that this isn't going to like make up for the stuff that you've done. This is where Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he comes in contact with God, what's the first thing that he says? Woe is me. Basically, I'm screwed. Woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I come from and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It, there's this there's something broken in us, right? Or you look at some of the minor prophets where God is really condemning Israel for their mistreatment of people, for their mistreatment of outsiders, for their unjust judicial system, for the way that they, you know, don't actually worship in spirit and in truth. And then he says, you know, and I think it's Micah 6 where he, he says, you know, like, what do I desire except that you walk humbly before your Lord and you practice uh, I think he says you, you you do mercy and you act justly or some, something along those lines and so God is repeatedly pointing his people to the fact that it's something within you that needs to be repaired it's not just you coming and doing stuff and then Romans 3 has this passage that tells us that we're dead you're dead in your trespasses and sins there is no one who does good all are fallen and so that's where the teaching of depravity comes from. So this is where I would really like pull away from that understanding of just like, oh, we're in the devil's playground. Just don't let him dirty you up too much. There's something in me. And I've seen this in my own heart. Like, for, you know. Yeah. Are you, for, are you familiar with shadow work? No. Um, or the Jungian concept of the shadow, which mm -hmm. is actually where all of this okay. comes from. Um, my tattoos and this imagery on the yeah, back yeah. wall over here. It's uh, so basically evil people don't think that they're they everyone thinks they're the good guy yeah shadow work is all about acknowledging that i sometimes have evil thoughts like if you're on a plane and like some kid won't stop kicking your seat or crying or something you sometimes have thoughts that you would never act out right we all have these thoughts or for me i might be like sitting at a funeral or a wedding and the thought comes across my mind which i would never willingly have myself that what if i just stood up right now and yelled something obscene and just like wouldn't that be absurd like absurd thoughts coming mm. to my head thoughts that i yeah. would never in a million years act out but there those thoughts exist yeah, well, where did that come from and buddhism a lot of it has to do with practicing meditation and when you begin observing your thoughts manifesting there is this awareness that you come to over hundreds to thousands of hours of meditation that you are no more in control of the thoughts that you have than you are over the thoughts that somebody else has. Yeah, so I think that this this kind of, in, in my worldview, would stem back to total depravity. Right. It is not that we are as depraved as we can be. We're not all out here, like, raping and murdering. But it is that our depravity, our nature, is corrupt. So, like, it's basically down to our core. Like... As much as I hate to admit it, like mm -hmm. that whatever was in Hitler that drove him to to do what he did, whatever was in Jeffrey Dahmer, whatever, right, right. it's in me too. And the, so the, totally, and the the idea behind shadow work is only when you accept that you are capable of real evil, that you are capable of selfish actions, that you are capable of doing things that hurt other people. Only when you fully acknowledge that and own it and are aware of it 
and are able to harness it and control it, can you truly do good to others? Can you truly be kind of inoculate yourself yeah. to evil by acknowledging that the potential is there, that you are not as good as you think you are, and that you might even be doing... Like, we have to constantly be analyzing ourselves and being like, am I really doing what is best for my community and for everyone mm -hmm. or just what is best for myself. See, and so this is where the gospel of Christ is for me so transformative in this regard because the, the challenge that we have to sort of face up to. So like, let's say we all accept that, okay, we're, we're sort of screwed up. Uh, we all have this, this evil within us. We all have the capacity to do some pretty destructive stuff. And when left to our own devices, we do veer in that direction more often than not. Like uh, a good example is you don't have to teach a child to lie. Right. Nobody teaches a child to lie. What insane human being is like, all right, he's one and a half. Now's the time, you know. Right, right. But like, let's say we have a kid right here, a two-year-old's running around. He knocks his glass off the table. And we're both looking that way. We don't see it happen. And we turn around and we logically know it could have only been this kid. And we look at the kid and we say, Who, did you do that? What's he going to say? He might say no. More often than not, no. Or blame it on sister. Or, right. you know, more often than not, children have this instinct of self-preservation, which results in something that virtually everybody in the world can agree is bad. Lying. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? Like, how is that inherent to human beings in the human experience right and so this is where i think that the understanding of depravity sort of touches on that and explains that in a unique way and not just as you know you're screwed start winding it back start undoing um, but this is where the gospel is really beautiful because jesus you know in john chapter 3 is speaking to nicodemus and he says this thing that just confuses this religious leader or at least he acts like he's confused by it. Or he says, you have to be born again, man. You, you, you need a new life. And John is like, or Nicodemus is like, what, I'm supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb and start this whole thing over? And Jesus, you know, explains to him that it's a new birth. It's this new heart. And so this is where with the Apostle Paul, when he talks about depravity in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, and he kind of walks through the gospel you know, in these first eight chapters of this book, where what he's doing is he's sort of explaining this broken part of us. And in John or in Romans chapter seven, he says this thing that if you and I are honest, is so true to our experiences. Is like, why is it that I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things that I want to do, I don't do? And he's speaking in his born again state. Like this is him as a Christian already talking about how there's still something in me that veers in that direction, and this is the reshaping of the whole human experience after we've been born again, after we've been given this new heart to actually do this thing that you've talked about following after Jesus and understanding that, man, I'm pretty screwed up and I've done some pretty shady stuff. But at the end of the day, it's not the fact that I've finally pleased God and made him like, like me. It's the fact that in love, Jesus has looked upon me and said, he's going to be mine. She's going to be mine. And that's what I see in myself, dude. Like I had, <laughs> few to no redeeming qualities you know i was sort of a scumbag like yeah i had friends i had people who liked me and maybe i was a little nicer than other scumbags in certain regards but i was i was an addict you know i was i was mean i stole i, I lied I, you know 
I was a shady dude. And so when God changed my heart and you're the reason I'm asking you these questions about your personal experience and like, what were you expecting? I didn't have any lifting of a burden off my back feeling. I didn't have any voice from heaven. I didn't have a prayer where I got up off my knees and I was like, okay, now I'm good. Dude, I just got on my knees and I just said, God, I'm so sorry. I screwed up like a lot. I've done some pretty awful things and I don't really know what to do with my life anymore. Like I was at a point where I basically at 21 had accepted the fact that I'm probably going to OD and die somewhere. And I was like, well, that's my fate, you know, go out with a bang. And so really it was just multiple months of like just talking to God and just feeling it out. And then it was like a couple of years of, you know, a couple months into my Christian faith, I'd relapse. I'd do something I wasn't supposed to do. My my thoughts would go in a direction that I know that they shouldn't. Um, I, I'd lie about something and it was just this process, but there really never was this point at which I was just like, whoa, okay. Burden lifted, voice in my head, now it all makes sense. But it was more of a gradual process of God sort of pulling that crap out of my heart that had just been so deeply embedded. Right. Both from the beginning of my life, but also stuff I'd accumulated just over the years of bad decisions and just really, really stupid choices that I made for how I would live my, my life. And so this is where I think that that fascinating aspect of like, okay, we're all broken. I think everybody sort of understands that. However you, you phrase that, you know, whether in, you know, it's this darker force sort of over here, whether it's this outside power, you know, but mm -hmm. we, we all understand that we're being heavily impacted by the fact that there's something going on in the decisions that I make that often they are leading me down the natural inclination of selfishness or self-preservation over against other people. Uh, and it is only in certain systems of belief or in certain, you know, um, certain modes of conduct that I start to sort of pull the veil back and say, well, this isn't sustainable. And this is why I just, I'm, I'm floored by the gospel of Jesus, because I think it just addresses that in such a unique way that I, I haven't seen in other things. Not to say that in like a, like a bragging way, like I've surveyed it all. I've walked to every, you know, mountaintop and <laughs> right. Jesus was the guy, you know, like yeah. that sounds arrogant. I, I get that, but yeah. it really is something special that I tried to be better, dude. Like I, I really tried. Yeah. But when things started to fall away, drugs stopped seeming interesting, much like what you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it shifted pretty dramatically. Well, thanks for sharing that because I think it's really important for you to share that because of how commonplace the narrative of overnight transformation, like if you go to Reddit, and r slash yeah. Christianity. Yeah. There's story after story after story where after one, please come into my life, Jesus Christ, there was a booming voice from the heavens and I and my life is completely amazing now. And like, yes, obviously, like I still have my struggles and we're always growing and learning and everything, but truly overnight transformations are so commonplace. And so I think uh, poisonous because I think there is a lot of good to be had from... A relationship with Christ and it's not going to be an overnight transformation for everyone although clearly it is for a lot of people sure. 
yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm okay with that. You know, like I, I think that's the ideal, right? <laughs> you, just, you stop being a scumbag tomorrow. You know, like I didn't. <laughs> and uh, my wife and I joke about this all the time. Well, not joke about it. We, we, it comes up all the time. But I'm just like, man, like this thing that I thought I was really done with. You know, like uh, before I was a Christian, I, I was a pretty angry dude, especially towards the end of my, you know, addiction and all that. Like I'd get mad pretty easily. And, and I thought that when I, when I had my conversion experience, when I was born again, uh, that went away. And for years, man, like I was, I was mellow, like nothing. And, that, and then like several years into marriage, I would just start to get really angry. Like, thank God, not at my wife or whatever, but like just at random stuff. We lived in LA and I would just get so freaking livid over like people on the road and just, you know, and it's like some of the stuff that you're describing, like this thought pops into my head that I could never vocalize about what I'd want to do to this person if they were in front of me right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm just like, well, where's that coming from? And I'm like, I'm in seminary. I'm studying to be a pastor. You know, here I am like blessing the mass. <laughs> just... I'm being facetious, but like, like I'm, yeah. I'm trying to do this noble thing to honor God with my life, and here I am thinking about like killing the guy that just cut me off on the 405. Yeah, like where's that coming? And it just started to like sort of float up to the surface. And I think that this is where just that honest assessment of myself and being like, dude, this stuff doesn't fall away overnight. Nor does religious activity purge you from it. No, you know, like it's it's a process. It's a growth process. And I think that just as much as I understand uh, and believe in the doctrine of total depravity, I also understand and believe in the doctrine of the grace of God, the common grace of God, that we're not all as bad as we could be. Mm -hmm. And that I think that there are good atheists and Buddhists and, you know, I, I can have a good neighbor who's not a Christian and trust this guy and have a friendship with him or like you, you know, you're not, a, you're not a Christian, but you, I consider you a friend and that we can freely talk and enjoy each other's company and appreciate one another. I consider that part of the grace of God. I consider that part of the goodness of God in creation and that we can have that kind of thing. Um, but it also, you know, kind of reveals the broader impact on humanity and that we have this goodness, but we also have this like really dark underlying, you know, layer to us. Yeah. That doesn't just fall away when I want it to. A hundred percent. Andre and I actually continued speaking for several hours after this on everything from Judaism, Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, and Christianity. Uh, but I feel like a four-hour podcast is a little much, especially for a first episode. Thank you so much, Andre, for taking the time to share your faith with me and to engage with my spiritual walk from a place of not only non-judgment, but genuine curiosity and empathy. It's always a real pleasure to speak with you, and I can't wait to continue the conversation sometime. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this. And I hope that us talking through our experiences has helped someone in some way with their own spiritual walk. We'll see you next time.